Hi, it's Sunday night, and as you know, I'm trying to get back in the swing of things, and I wasn't sure who to do for the bio. Actually, my mind drew a blank, but on the other hand, I want to get somebody good because uh, this is being sponsored already from a couple weeks by my very, very good friends, some of my favorite people, the Leap Tags. And the Roses in Israel, Bernie and Susan, and Donnie and Gila, and families in Israel, and Modine. Um, and I think, you know, who would be the right kind of fit? And I saw, t I'm really, I drew a blank. I asked Ariel, Ari send me names, but nothing, you know, clicked till I saw one. And then it kind of came together. I was surprised I'm doing it myself because um, Jonathan Marvin, who was nice enough to give me a ride to Shoal from Enchamara, is showing me his Gazanius, who's the old-fashioned German professor of Hebrew grammar. You can fall asleep <clears throat> if you're into that. <clears throat> and that made me think of somebody who I think is, your site is this week or last week, and that would be Elio Bucher, who's not a gadol, but was a weirdo, Sheba weirdos, of a great person living 500 years ago, late, 14, late 1400s, early 1500s, uh, who was Mr. Dikduk, even though he was a yeki. And that makes him really kind of weird. Because we don't associate the great Bali Dikduk with the German Jews, with the Ashkenazic Jews. Rather, we associate them with the Sephardim. You know, um, Menachem ben Sruk, Dush ben Labrat, Ibn Janach, Ibn Chayuj, and so forth and so on. I mean, Radak was a Provence guy, but okay, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. Not Ashkenaz. But there's an exception. And that's our hero today, Elio Halevi, Elio Levita, or, Abi, or if you want, Elio Bachor even though he was married. <clears throat> and uh, he was a weirdo figure who had a very unusual life, which tells you a lot about the screwball Jewish situation in Renaissance Italy. <clears throat> so here we go. Our hero was born near Nuremberg, around 1470, a little before, a little after, it doesn't matter. And he died around 1550, uh, approximately, so that's about 80 years of press. That's a long life. <clears throat> and as I say, he was born in Yeki, born in Germany, in Bavaria. But if you know anything about Germany, the 1400s, Bechlal, and the late 1400s, in particular, were terrible times for Jews, which was an unusual amount of anti-Semitism, even for Germany. And there was a large amount of Jews being expelled from one Medina or another within Germany, what used to call the Holy Roman Empire. I spoke about it many times before, <clears throat> and our hero, if he's born around 1470, in, uh, in Nuremberg, or near Nuremberg anyway, Neustadt, so don't be surprised if the Jews are expelled and kicked out, so on and so forth. I think that's how they went to, to Firth, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> now, because um, Nuremberg had once been a big yeshiva, they had the Augsburgers, the Regensburgers, and the Nuremburgers, the three types of pilpul kashas. They used to be popular in the Lumdisha world, 
of the 13 and 1400s, 1500s, which are unknown today. <clears throat> now, he was, seems to me, about 20 years old, something like that, in his 20s, when this happened. So imagine a guy growing up in the Nuremberg-type area before the expulsion, and obviously a very intelligent person, and therefore you learn locally, you know, the yeshiva and the cheder with the family and all the rest of it, you know, uh, the Torah should the Torah roughly speaking. Now, as he learned Gemara and all that sort of thing, but also the Tanakh and the other business and the Diktuk, and what's particularly unusual about it, as we shall see, he had a natural draw to Ivrit and Loshan Kodesh and Diktuk. And I mean all the nitty-gritties of it. Now, that's just a matter of a sensibility. Uh, even you who are listening to the podcast will understand if I said there are two guys in the yeshiva, very good guys, and they look at a Gemara, each one with a different sensibility. One is a very lundish one, and the other guy has a very halachalamaisa one. So this guy looks at a Gemara in Babamitsiya, and is interested in, you know, Yush, and I don't know, you know, the, all the Londisha business, and the Hakiras, and the Diukim, and so forth, which is fine. Which is just fine. The other guy is more of your, you know, uh, Posek type. And he's looking at the Gemara and saying, well, do we Paskin this way? Do we Paskin this way? What's the different opinions of Roshan? Who, who's the final thing in the Shulchan Aruch? And take it down to the Ketos or whoever. He's looking with a halachic sensibility. It's a well-known split that you find within the very bowels of the yeshiva movement itself today and forever in the past. Nothing wrong with that. Not everybody's the same. Obviously, you have some heavy hitters who can do both. But usually, one guy's more the Lamsha type. He's going to be a Magashir sort of thing. And the other guy's more the, it's going to be a rabbi or a dayan. But there is a third possibility. There's more than three, but there's a third possibility. And that could be that the guy is what we would call today a Mechkar type. Or a Haskola type. And I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily. And so he will look at the Gemara or whatever it is, uh, the Tanakh, from the literary point of view. And that, by that I mean the grammar. And the construction of the words. And the Targumim. He'll look at a Gemara and he'll say, what exactly, what grammatical uh, construction is that, is that word? You know, is it, is it Kal, is it Ifil? Does Aramaic have Kal and Ifil? And all, the kind of thing that the yeshivas say completely ignore. But this guy doesn't ignore it. And he'll say, ooh, look at that Gemara, look at that Tozos. There's a word you usually don't see. Or grammatical construction that must be made up because it doesn't conform to Dictic and so on and so forth. Now, you don't shoot the guy, you know. That's that's what turns him on. That's what interests him. And if you're talking about the Chumash, for example, you know, who can deny that getting the grammar right on the Chumash is kind of important in order to understand the Pashup shot and maybe even the deeper shot. So our hero, although he had what I would call a, a general Ashkenazi yeshiva type education, was at the same time drawn to the dictic side of things, which he really plunged into. 
Now, what will you have if you're living in the late 1400s? Well, you have the stuff from Spain that was written in Hebrew. I mean, a guy like we're talking about living in Germany in the 15th century is not going to know Arabic and not even know these books exist. So you can't read some of the most important uh, Bali Diktuk from Spain because their stuff was written in Judeo-Arabic. I mean, Ibn Janach, Ibn Chayuj, you know, people like that, right? Dunash Ben Labrada in a lot of places. He wouldn't know. Uh, he wouldn't know. But the stuff that was written in Hebrew, that would be Ibn Ezra, Radak especially, uh, you know, Menachem Ben Sruk wrote in Hebrew, people like that, um, you could read. And you could be Mayan in it. And you could carry the ball forward, because that's certainly what interested him. I would say fascinated him and moved him as we shall see. The thing is, he lived in a funny time and place. If I were talking about a guy living in Germany in peaceful times, or perhaps in Poland later on, when it was relatively okay, then he would have lived and died as a person in a very firm environment, being the weirdo who was interested in the dick-dook. There was always a few of those guys. And, you know, he would have his reputation one way or the other, depending on what he published. But our hero had a very romantic, small r, um, biography. And I don't mean that in a good way. Because sometime in the 1490s, when he's a young man and, and married, the Jews are kicked out of wherever he lived. And like many Ashkenazi Jews living in Bavaria in southern Germany, he runs away, not to Poland, but to northern Italy. Isn't that interesting? Many of the Jews, maybe even Rove, uh, of the Italian Jews or Ashkenaz, contrary to popular belief. The Italiani Jews was like a certain minority in the north of Italy. People like our hero <clears throat> moved there all through the 1200s, 1300s, and 1400s. And they all lived in these <coughs> small communities, usually legally restricted to this, that, and the other. Loan banking and small, uh, you know, uh, small loans and pawnbroking and all kind of stuff like that. Uh, subject to all kind of rules and regulations. Not liked by the guy, but tolerated by them. It's, you know, for economic necessity. And the Jews basically developed the attitude of, screw you, you don't like me, I don't like you. And... You know, they, they created their own, uh, I don't want to say the word ghetto, because the ghettos actually were enacted around the end of the lifetime of our hero by the Catholic Church. But cultural ghettos, which the Jewish Jews hang around each other and cultivate the Jewish culture, meaning the Gemara and the Yeshivas and things like that. So here comes our hero, and he crosses the border from um, Bavaria into Italy. It's not that far away. I mean, it's not close, but it's not that far away, if you look at the map. And not surprisingly, as I've remarked on many occasions, he tries to settle in Venice or Padua. And the reason is because uh, Venice and Padua were all part of the same country, the territory of the Republic of Venice. And they usually played their cards so cleverly that they were never invaded by anybody. The other Italian states were constantly invaded. But our hero doesn't have good luck. And although he moved to Italy to find safety and non-expulsion, he had bad mazel, as we'll see throughout his life. 
because Italy in the 1500s, when he lived there, at least for the first half of the 1500s, which is when he lived, was a constant battleground of the Renaissance Wars, which you have to be an early modern historian to keep track of all the invasions who attacked who, and they're always always switching sides and things like this. And um, there was even one time in 1509, because of the anger of Pope Julius II, that even Venice was invaded, as we shall see, which was a one-time deal. So here's our guy, young and married, maybe with a kid or two, I don't know, probably, and he tries to settle in Venice, but what marketable skill does he have? Um, usually an Ashkenazi Jew has moved to, to uh, Italy the same way a young guy today moves to Baltimore or to, to uh, face Lakewood. They want to get into some kind of a business and make a lot of money. They're not going for a college degree necessarily, anything like that. They're looking to go into business, and the truth of the matter is, many are successful and can buy and sell the college graduate ten times over. But you got to be built a certain way. That is not who our hero was. He was egghead. He was intellectual. And not only that, he was intellectual in a non-rabbinic way. Not an anti-rabbinic way whatsoever. He was a Shomer Shabbos and all the rest of it. But he is fascinated by what we call the Haskalah of that time, which would indeed have a heavy interest and preoccupation with the Hebrew language, okay, with Lush and Kodesh. And therefore, the only kind of job you can get to, to make any money to help feed a family is to be a tutor of somebody in those subjects. So to be a tutor for a rich family, Chvesa and Tanakh, and Dikdok, and Ivrit, and Shira, stuff like that, not Gemara. So that's what he did, but it didn't work out that great. And after a few years in 1504, so that would put him in his early 30s, uh, he moves to Padua. Padua was the Icarus, I've spoken about Padua in the past. I know to the person listening to this podcast, unless you're like a real freak and you remember everything I said, which is impossible, uh, Padua was the Iker Mokum Torah and Yiddishkeit in Italy. Padua had what we would call Lakewood of Italy, especially at that time. It was already there in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. At the time I'm talking about, you had the Mari Mints and the Mari Padua and uh, Shmuel Yosu Katzen They had the big Rosh Hashivas and Postkim and stuff like that. And so the Jewish community in Padua was at least intellectually an interesting place. And he was there for five years. And he already started doing what he would do the rest of his life, which is publish books on Dikduk, some of which were stolen and plagiarized, things like that, but we don't have to go into all that. Come out with books on Dikduk. What's there to do in Dikduk? Oh, there's plenty. Meaning, first of all, they're Chedushim. Second of all, there's a summary. In my, if you ask me, myself and I, if you want to summarize what he did in his lifetime, he synthesized the works of the great Spanish grammarians, plus he added his own in a very clear Hebrew. It's a pleasure to read his stuff. There's no, you never in doubt what he means. He was a true master of the Hebrew language. And, um, and he was assembling, you know, he had big projects to uh, publish important works, encyclopedia-type works, dictionary-type works, when they've written and translate into Yiddish and, and Italian and all kind of stuff like that. Uh, now, it's not your typical rabbinic thing. 
the typical rabbinic thing would be to go to Padua Yeshiva, learn up the Gemara, and then publish Kedushim or Shalos and Tubas or things like that. But I never said that our hero, Elio Levita, was a typical guy. He was not. And I've mentioned in the past, there always was room for a few people like that. I'm saying, behold, door to door, there was a few people, weirdos, that were into the, you know, this sort of thing. The Mesora, the, the, the Tamim, the history of the text, all the kind of business. The regular guy wasn't interested in them. There were always a few, and he was definitely one of these, even though he's not born in Italy, but he's Italian now, because that's where he's living with his family. Uh, and he started to, uh, you know, establish himself in this particular area. And then he got the first set of bad luck. Because, I said before, a Jew wants to live in Padua, among other things, because it's safe. Uh, I can't tell you how many times the cities of northern Italy were sacked. You know what that means? An enemy army comes and attacks the city. city does not surrender. So it's stormed. Those the enemy breaks, the besieging army breaks in. And when they break in, Hutra Horatsua in those days. That means the army for two, three, four days has the right to kill anybody, rape anybody. They did. Um, steal anything and so forth. So it were terrible. When the city was sacked, it was like bad news. And if you were Jewish, you got it on the chin double. You see? So it was really rough to live in these cities. I can guarantee you the Venetians thought it won't happen to us. It happened to you in Milan, happened to Mantua, happened to Bologna, and so forth and so on. It's not going to happen to us. <clears throat> to his bad luck, the one time it happened was five years after he moved there, in 1509, when the very, very complicated politics, fascinating actually, but not for a podcast here, of, of early Renaissance Italy, early 16th century Renaissance Italy. I know you're smiling when I say that. It's actually very interesting in terms of the history of warfare and the history of European politics, Bacalal, and this is when Pope Julius II uh, was commanding armies and uh, he actually started the thing, kicked the French out and attacked the, and destroyed the Venetians because the Venetians had allied themselves with the French against him, although later on they switched sides and they... There was something called the League of Cambrai, where a whole bunch of European countries got together to go and attack and destroy Venice and, and France. And the long and the short of it is, Padua was captured and sacked by enemy invaders in 1509. It's the only time it happened. After that, it never happened again. Um, but he and, and everything that he had collected to help him do his dictic stuff was destroyed. And he's lucky to get out alive with his family. And they had to run away. And so what do you do? As I said before, Dictuk is interesting. It's okay with me, but it's not, you can't make a living. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? Like, how, how do you make a living like that? Like, what exactly is your profession? If you're a Rebbe, if you're teaching kids, I'm not saying the Rebbe's got paid so well, but that's a, that's a well-known job. What exactly do you do if you're a Medoctic? Like, how's that fit in? Well, this was a real problem. He ran away, as the others did, to Venice. There's a whole story of Venice didn't want to let him in. This is actually how the Jewish community started in Venice. That they were refugees from the sack of Cambrai, League of Cambrai. And that's when the Venetians said, if you want to live in here, you have to live in a ghetto. And the Jews said, we'll take anything. We just want to live inside the city of Venice. Because Venice, the city of Venice 
was not captured by the enemy. And so what a Jew needs more than anything else is security, personal security. And then you worry about the anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism in Venice, both in the city of Venice and in the territory of the Republic of Venice, was always very bitter, very anti-Semitic. But the Jews worked it out, you know, for better or worse, without going into details. And they were willing to put up with a lot of junk from the Venetian government in order to have a city, in order to live in a place that was free from invasion and was subject to law and order. I've said many times, I was in Venice, I don't know how many years ago, one of my trips that I led, and you see in Venice, on the Doge's Palace, which is in the city, it says in Italian, the impartial administration of justice is the foundation of the Republic. See? Well, that's what a Jew wants to hear. <laughs> you get it? The Venetian courts were basically, you know, honest, and the police and all that was basically honest. So as long as you uh, obeyed the laws, even though a lot of the laws were anti-Semitic, you, know, you could get along. But he had nowhere to go um, because, as I said before, his whole world was destroyed with the destruction of Padua. And he couldn't find a, good, a job that could make a living in Venice because I'll tell you again, how many people are so well off that they can have an interest in Bechlau that they can afford and be interested in giving their kids, what shall I say, dictic lessons and things like that. Even today, you don't find anybody paying money for that. So he ended up having to travel and went to Rome. This is in 1515-1516. By this time, Julius II was dead. And I believe it was Leo X. These are well-known names in the papacy. Right, And these were the good popes to the Jews. Meaning, as good as the popes ever were, this was the time when it happened. Leo X. Because they were the Medici, you know, from Florence. So they were more worldly. And he ended up coming to Rome. And uh, he met up with a famous cardinal. That time a big priest. Uh, Viterbo, Cardinal Viterbo. Uh, who later was a cardinal. And this guy, now here comes an important part of the story. This guy was what you call a Renaissance humanist. Now, what do I mean? We're talking now the early 1500s. So that is the period of what we call the Renaissance, the 1400s and 1500s. Renaissance means the rebirth. My friends, the rebirth of what? And the answer is the rebirth of interest, in, of the legitimacy of interest in the secular. You see, in the beginning of the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church took over everything, was very from and very controlling. And it's like a mashkiach and a yeshiva. The Catholic Church wanted to control wanted to control all culture, and they did so. So if you lived century after century in those days, everything was Catholic. Literature, architecture, philosophy, even science, if you want to call it that. And, you know, everything was subsumed within Catholic doctrine. And that's they thought is the right way. Historians, for this reason, called the Dark Ages. That's a, a tendentious term, but okay, because historians are professors, professors are secular, and if they look at an era, centuries, when the secular was usher, so they're called the Dark Ages. But little by little, starting in Italy, in the late 13 and then 14, 1500s, things started to change. Things started to move to the left. 
very, very slowly. And especially in late 14, 15, early 1500s, the beginnings of a rebirth of interest in the secular started to manifest itself in European culture, especially in Italy. The Hainu, interest in things that are not Christian, namely Greece and Rome. You see? The Greece and Rome. After all, even the Catholic Church was not choshesh that somebody in the 1400s, 1500s is going to start believing in the gods of Greece and Rome. So it's okay to start printing, yeah, the printing press, you know, printing or, or writing up the books of Aristotle and Plato and Hippocrates and Galen and the history books of Thucydides, Herodotus, you know, all those guys, uh, Tacitus, uh, Plutarch, etc. And therefore you read about the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar and so forth. And it's not religious, it's not anti-religious, get it? If you read a biography of Alexander the Great, it's just a secular biography. It's not attacking the Catholic Church. It's just telling you it's written before the Catholic Church existed. And it's just telling you what happened to Alexander the Great. So, even a frummy Catholic, it's okay to read that. It's okay for, for um, started to be okay for uh, painters, and, painters and artists to paint pictures not only of Yashka and all the rest of it, but of scenes from ancient Rome and Greece and so forth. And it like spread that way uh, very, very slowly. And um, the idea of introducing scientific method into the study of history and the religion began at this time, which is why they call it humanism. Humanism means that unlike the Dark Ages, where God is the center of all studies, now you, the human being is. For example, take a look at history. History is a humanistic discipline, meaning, what do you study if you're a historian? I mean, what are you studying? So you'll answer me superficially, you're studying the past. Duh, I get that. But what are you really studying? What are you really studying? The answer is studying the human being. You see what people have done in the past and how noble they can be and how opposite of noble they can be. And this and that and the other. So history, for example, is a humanistic discipline. Now, during the time we're talking about, there began to arise among some Christian intellectuals, um, 1400s and 1500s, interest in, uh, first of all, the classical languages to understand the Bible better. So instead of reading the Bible in some German or, I mean, in some Latin translation, learn Latin correctly and learn Greek, also Hebrew. Because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, even they agreed to that. So Catholic, even though it hurts them to say so, will say God spoke to Moses in the Hebrew language even though they hate to admit it, you know, the Jewish language. So the there was a revival of interest in Ivrit, even though the Catholic intellectuals knew that their knowledge of Hebrew leaves much to be desired. Let's put it that way. Leaves much to be desired. There were a few priests and all that in the Middle Ages who knew this, but it was rare. Now you start to get what they call polyglot Bibles, in which people, intellectuals, will publish whole Bibles with columns. Here's Hebrew, here's Aramaic, here's Spanish, here's ancient uh, Persian, here's this, that, and the other. So you could compare and contrast different translations 
Lahavdu, it's like you would look today in an Ari Kaplan Chumash. You see how he translates something, and then you look at the bottom, you see there are other ways of translating it. You know, Rashi translates the words Azoi, and Dibben Ezra translates the words differently, and Samson Revil Hirsch will definitely translate it in a different way, and so forth and so on. Nothing wrong with that. So this kind of sensibility to know all the different stuff out there really starts around this time. And in addition to that, now this is going to sound really funny. Um, there arose at this time in the 14th and early 1500s what we call Christian Hebraists, which means Christians, Catholics actually, because um, the Protestants hadn't started yet, who were interested for one reason other than the Hebrew language. Why would they be interested in, in the, and not only Hebrew language, but um, Hebrew books, as far as, uh, especially, now I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow you away. Not only in uh, the Chumash and Tanakh and Mepharshim, that you can understand. They want to see how Rashi reads it, and how Ibn Ezra and Ramban and Rajbam and so forth. That you can understand. A Catholic might be interested in finding a better shot than he already has in, the, let's say, Chumash. Hard uh, so Tovavo. I mean, how do you translate that? Yeah, How do the Jews translate it? But in addition to that, believe it or not, there arose a very interesting Christian interest in Kabbalah, in the Zohar and so forth. You say, what the heck? How's that work? The idea started, I'm going to simplify, I'm not going to go through a whole treatise, that um, the Zohar, unlike the Talmud, the Talmud was hated, was hated. Um, that goes back to the Catholic attitudes in the Middle Ages. But the Zohar was seen, first of all, as really coming from Shimba Yochai. So that part's interesting. But in addition to that, it contains proofs for Christianity. So, whereas in the debate the Ramban had with Pablo Cristiani, the argument they tried to advance was that the Talmud, the Gemara, proves the truth of Christianity in Yashka. Here, we're talking about that the Zohar does so. That's a little bit weird, but now it's not the time to go into why and where. But this is a Dovriyadua. He had a bunch of very interesting, weird, but interesting and authoritative Italian Gaish uh, intellectuals who really wanted to study and did study from Jews uh, different parts of the Zohar, which wasn't published yet. It was a manuscript and things like that. Okay? Now they did it, Shalol they did it in order to find what they were uh, um, persuaded of, they'll find the truth of Christianity in there. Which means they had a little bit of doubts of their own religion, but that's a separate schmooth. Uh, but in order to do that, you mamash have to have a tutor. Because how are you going to be able to crack the Zohar, you know? I don't think anybody listening to this podcast could crack the Zohar unless he had some kind of translation. Right? Typically. So, it was such an era, such a uh, a, a strange period, and our hero moves to Rome when Leo was the Pope, and he meets this Cardinal Viterbo, who says, "I'm interested in this Hebrew stuff and this Kabbalah stuff. I, I want to make a deal with you. I hear you're a bucky in this sort of thing. I'm glad to meet you. I'm not interested in a rabbi. I don't want to hear Gemara stuff. That's no interest to me whatsoever. The time that we're talking about." which is the early 1500s, was precisely the time when the Catholics were weighing 
whether they burn all the Gemaras, all of them, destroy the Gemaras. And uh, one of these Christian Hebraists, Johann Reuchlin, Reuchlin, who was a German, who didn't like Jews, but he was interested in Kabbalah, he wrote a book on the Shema Mafarj, believe it or not, and things like that. Uh, he defended that he shouldn't burn the Gemaras because we might learn something from it, even though the Gemara is junk. So the Jews were plenty happy that some guy somewhere was able to prevent the burning of Gemara, whatever his reason was. You see? So, here our hero meets somebody like that, Cardinal Viterbo, or who's going to be Cardinal Viterbo, Carl Antonini. Uh, he's head of the Augustan uh, Friars. And he says, come and live in my palace, and I'll treat you like gold. You won't have to worry about Pernosa. And you give me Hebrew lessons and tell you the truth. So if you want, I can teach you Greek. So we'll both agree to this. Now, he found our hero a attractive personality, not a Jew. But he obviously must have found him to be a charming person. And he took him up. Because how do you turn something like that down? It's a free food, free I mean, kosher, uh, you know, free quarters. The guy was a Renaissance prince. He lived in a big palace. So to give him a couple of rooms, you know, it was like living all time in a full time in a nice hotel. What's the problem? And he did that for 13 years. Okay? And uh, here he, as they say, taught the cardinal the Hebrew stuff. The Jews in Rome didn't like it. They said, you know, I'll have to teach a guy a Torah and, you know, uh, you're... Uh, getting too close with them, and things like that. And I'll tell you, there, there is something to that, okay? As we shall see, this had a bit upon his family uh, in the long run. But on the other hand, the guy was broke, and, and, and this was a good job. And as a result, he occupied a high position in Roman society because he's the cardinal's Jew, meaning he's obviously a big intellectual, in the kind of stuff that we can understand, appreciate, which is Hebrew dictuk, they can't understand halacha, gemara, and that they had super contempt for. But the language of the Bible, and to know it inside and outside, b'churin of a that they had high praise for. And he uh, was influenced by them to write what I would call Gaisha-style dictionaries and encyclopedic works. That's what his stuff is like doesn't necessarily read Jewish, although it's 100% Jewish, it's 100% from. There's nothing in it that's that's not 100% from. But the style is a Gaisha style, which means that this is the style, like of the Aruch, in which if you want to learn a language, then I give you a dictionary, let's say, for example, or something like that, a concordance, and then you read it as you go along. And that's how you master the language. That is how the Goyim learned uh, Latin and Greek, uh, they did in my time when I was a little kid. I learned uh, Latin in school, and uh, you know you do the nominative, dative, accusative, all that junk, and you know past, present, and future. And in other words, you learn all the tenses and the pluperfect and the gonza business, uh, and then you're supposed to apply that when you read it. Now we don't do that in the firm world. They totally skip the dicta, but to the degree that they do not, what you do is you're already learning Hebrew and speaking Hebrew. At, the, at least at the level of davening, basic psukim, and the diktuk you learn along the way, you're applying to what you already know, so to speak. But in, that's not how they learn Greek and Latin. 
And that's not how you learn Hebrew. Um, instead, you, you know, you, you learn it first, the, the diktuk. And uh, the guy loved this sort of thing. And he published one book after another of high quality on these. So while he was in the Cardinal's house, this one he published his famous book, Sefer Abachor, which all about diktuk and so forth, dedicated to the Cardinal. That's one of the reasons. He said, I called it El- Sefer Abachor because my name is Elia Abachor, even though I'm not a Bachor. And therefore, uh, and it's Bachor, it's, it's the choicest of uh, all the disciplines, and therefore everything's great, you know. <laughs> uh, it's also the same gematria, I think it's Elio, something like that. Uh, and he published, so in other words, let's put it this way, he was a productive scholar, just not of the sort of thing that we're used to, which is Gemara, 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 or even a Pirish on the Tanakh, like the Sforno did. He's a contemporary of Sforno, but the Sforno was a rabbi. I, I did him not long ago. The Sforno was, among other things, at different times of his life, an Avbezdin. You get it? He was a Rav. He was a Talmudist. He happened to be famous for writing a book on the uh, on the on the Chumash, you know, his commentary on the Chumash. I, I know that. And that's kind of unusual, but he was a Rav. Our here was not a rough. I mean, he was Gemara, but, you know, not like that. And he came with all these sorts of things, which are uh, the meat and potatoes for the uh, for the dictic freaks and for the guy, all of whom were dictic freaks. Now, in his case, this lasted from like 1515 to 1527, something like that. And the reason is because just as he made bad move, moving to Padua five years before the city was attacked and sacked. Same thing happened in Rome. Again, one time in its history, Rome was storm in modern history, Rome was stormed and sacked in 1527. That had to do with the very interesting politics of the early 1500s in, in Italy. And basically it was the Pope versus um, the Emperor Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was Charles I in Spain, and Charles V's troops had wiped out the, the French army. I don't want to bore you with all the details. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, Pope Clement and the emperor really didn't get along, and Charles V really like lost it, and he sent an army of mercenaries, including many Protestants, even though Charles himself was a big Catholic, and they attacked Rome and captured the city and killed everybody and, and burned everything, and the Pope himself had locked himself up in Castle San Angelo. It was a very interesting time. All I'm interested in, t- in here is our hero got screwed again because all the stuff he put together in 13 years in the Cardinal's house in the palace that now destroyed because the invaders sacked the palace. Maybe they burned it down, something like this. And again, he was lucky to escape with his life, him and his family. And they got to run away again. See, see, Imam's got bad muscle. You got bad muscle. What do you do now? In 1527, if he's born in... See, he's in his 50s. Right? He's in his late 50s, about 57, 58 years old, something like that, 59. I mean, that's the wrong time to lose your job. And where are you going to find... I mean, he like really had lucked out to find this big guy who you know, took care of him, so to speak, patronized him, appreciated his qualities more than the Jews did. And now that was over because the guy had to run away also. <clears throat> so what do you do? So he goes back to Venice. Uh, 
now he was more famous than when he originally lived in Venice because he published all these dictated books, which the Goyim held from a veldt. So you see, the Jews are such so constituted that if the Goyim hold of you, then the Jews will as well, even though the, the Jews didn't read any of his books. And when he came there, it's very interesting that he got hired by Bromberg uh, as a corrector of the press. Here we have a very interesting role, which is a major part of our hero's career, and that is the early years of the, pre of the printing press. I have in front of me a book I've mentioned a number of times by David W. Amram called The Makers of Hebrew Books in Italy, by which he means in the Tukuf we're talking about, by David Amram, who was the Talmud Mubik of Jastro in Philadelphia. <clears throat> okay? And it's really a very good book of the old school in which he goes through what's farm were pr printed, not so many, what's farm were printed in the early years in Sanzino and uh, Rome and Bologna and this place and that place, and what kind of types did they use, you know, typesetting and all this other junk. So, uh, what I can tell you is that um, in Venice, which was very anti-Semitic, there was a guy from Belgium named Daniel Bromberg, who, a total guy, and he made it his business as a business venture. Must have been more than that, but it was a business venture to publish in nice format the classics of Judaism, namely the Talmud Bavli and the Mikras Gedolas. And he did do it. Um, I've spoken about the Bromberg um, Shas, of which there's only a few left. And that was the Shas, basically, that served as the uh, main template for all the Shasas today, except for Steinsaltz. You know, the classic page of the Gemara, we all know, with the Gemara in the middle and Rashi on the one side, Tosa on the other, and so forth, that's from Bromberg. And the nice Hebrew font, font, you know, the particular font in the Gemara and the Rashi font on the side and the Tosas and all the rest of it, that comes from Bromberg. And like I say before, he published the whole Shas. With the idea of, of a business venture, as a capitalist venture, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. And he was very successful. The Jews ate it all up. Right? The thing is, in Venice, they would not permit Jews to be employed in regular jobs. They had very few jobs that Venice would allow you, to, and to, the government would allow you to participate in. And so here's Bromberg trying to publish the Gemara, for example, Tosas and so forth. And, uh, can't, that no Jews are allowed to work on the project, which was counterintuitive. So he had to get Mishamadim and people like that. And the number one thing you need is getting the typeset correct, right? You know what I mean? No, it's getting the right letters there. That's on the one hand. And then you need spell check or Magia correctors. Like you have a safer Torah today, you need a Magia. To make sure no mistakes are made. Because mistakes are going to be made. That's just the way it is. Or do you not have spell check? You see? Mistakes are going to be made. So he needed people who are bar hockey to be the correctors. The Magiam of the Gemaras, of the Mikras Gedolas, and things like that. And they were hard to come by. So here comes our hero to Venice. As a Jew, he shouldn't be allowed to participate. But Bromberg says, listen, Cardinal of uh, 
the terrible held of him, and the other guy held of him. He's, and he he's published these wonderful works, making the Hebrew language available to the Christians. So give him a break, and they did. So he was one of the uh, correctors, one of the good ones, of the Talmud Bavli, which is just interesting. Okay? Plus, he also taught a couple of people on the side. In my opinion, he did so to cover himself that he shouldn't get fired by the Venetian government. Knows if he has VIPs, he's teaching the, uh, you know, Torah to or what Hebrew, then they're going to protect him. The most famous was the French ambassador. It's a well-known thing, the French ambassador. And uh, again, a lot of the local Jews said, like, didn't get on there. Anyway, uh, people, you know, uh, as I say, criticize him. And look what he wrote back in a poem. Malamed, I just, I found this. Malamed Lagoyim Hayisi, because those, because those are Sisi. It's true that I taught Goyim. I'm still, I'm still a Jew. I'm from Jew. And I believe in Hashem, not in Yashka. In the Bar Shemayim Bars. You shouldn't get Divri Torah to Goyim. So those only things that count, not to teach him like the plain meaning of the words of the Chumash. And I have famous rabbis like this Fornu who did it. People bigger than me. Plus I needed to make a living. I got a family. I've had bad economic mazel. Instead of chitas I have storms and trouble. My wife, the mother, is is trying to take care of the children. No money. And I got daughters to marry off. So don't give me any lip over here. I got shaduchim issues. So you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, what do you want for my life? Okay, what do you want for my life? And so, uh, so he did it. And again, this lasted for a number of years because at least. You know, as a corrector of books, that was a job job, as we'd say today. Uh, but eventually, the uh, business went bust. That's what happened with Bromberg. Okay? Now, meanwhile, all through this, he's publishing the safe from this. He published books using the printing press on every little stupid aspect of dicta you can imagine. I mean, you know, the verbs, the adjectives, the shirashim, uh, uh, by the way, the uh, Trump, okay, which he says, this is very famous, in his opinion, the Trump comes from uh, uh, Post by Shani or something like that. And, oh boy, that raised hell with all the rabbis. So what are you talking about? goes back to uh, Moshe Misenai. Uh, and the Nikudos, uh, you know, I mean, whole books on these subjects, you get what I'm saying? Whole books on the subjects. 
And usually some play in the words Elio, that's his name. Uh, but eventually he, you know, the business went bust and he had to move to Germany, back to his old country. So here he was, whoo, 70 years old, okay? 70 years old, moving back to Germany to join this guy. Now, by the way, he was offered um, prestigious professor jobs by Christian Goyim, the king of France, and others. They said, you're obviously the world's expert on Ivrit. Come and be a professor in the University of Paris. You can be Jewish. Or in Vienna, places like that. He wouldn't take it. You know, he says, I don't want to be in a country where no Jews are allowed except me. I mean, you know, you, you got to give him credit. But uh, anyway, if you turn it down, so what do you do for a living? And so he had to move to another printing press. There weren't that many in uh, Germany and Isni. And uh, he ran the press for this uh, German guy. And he published a lot of books over there. And uh, till that press sort of like, let's put it this way, ran out of steam. By that time, he was like 75 years old. Uh, he moved back to Venice. And believe it or not, uh, even to his last, I mean, let's put it this way. In those days, there was no social security. Uh, rich, he was not. How he put bread on the table? So he basically worked to the end of his life. It's funny to me that um, one of the last books he was Magia was the Sharidura, which is a super Yerodea safer. And, you know, purely halachic. You wouldn't associate it with our hero. But on the other hand, how do you know they're not making mistakes? You get it? The the era of early publishing, even today, but even early publishing, was full of mistakes. And, you know, the, the Gemaras are famous for that, infamous for that. And they tried to get it right in the second time when they reprinted in another place or reprinted in another place. But it's not it's not push it. You know what I mean? It's going to happen. Meanwhile, he was just churning out these books. The one I like is the Tishbi, um, which I have in a modern copy. I have two books from Elio Bacher. Uh, one is, and they're both from later in life, doesn't matter. One is I have the Redox book on Shirashem. So the Redox book on Shirashem um, with what they call the Nimukim, the explanations of Eliyahu Hamadaktik. That's our hero, Elio uh, Bacher. Okay? And uh, here, I'll just open it, you know, uh, at, at at random. Uh, to Zion. And let's see what we have over here. Uh, let's do Zayas. Zayas. Zion Yud Saf. Zayas Rani Fetor Pritor. He has a Pusik. Shemin Zayas Hin. Erze Shemin. He's got the three biblical places. Pirish, Atse Shemin. Zayas, Shosin Shemin. Hiyesh Zaysim, Sheinamosin Shemin. Vechem Tirgum Unkelis. That Erze Shemin Advash means Ara de Zaysa of the Mishcha. So you'll have Zayas and it has Mishcha. And Zayas Yulukha Yudua. So now there's a simple, you know, things like this. So you should know the difference between Erze Shemin Advash. Just it goes all throughout the. Uh, the stuff and at the bottom you have his his footnotes. Okay? Uh, that's one. And the other one is more interesting. It's called the Sefer Tishvi. Now he wrote 20 or 30 books, but uh, Tishvi is really cool. 
And I bought the one recently that was published, believe it or not, in Eretz Yisrael um, by, I don't know who, in, in, in 2005 I was there. Can you believe it? It's some from Haredi uh, publishing place. And it's got, like, Mikris Gedolus on it, all the classic Mepharshim on the Sefer Tishri. These are people who dingzach on him. Uh, especially, you got Yaakov Emden. Well, the point is, I'm shocked that Yaakov Emden would criticize. He criticized everybody. But it means he held from him if he's writing his oris to his book. He's got uh, Yerukim Fischl Perlau and uh, Yeshaya Pick. You know, the Achronim who were had a weird interest in Diktuk. And they're arguing over little nitty-gritty sorts of things. The reason they call Sefer Tishri, his name is Elio, Elio Tishri, and Tavshin Beis Yud gives you 712. It's got 712 words in it, which he says the Arch doesn't cover, and he's going to, you know what I mean, um, uh, explain it. Again, I'm just opening at random. Kofa. Kofa Lam Harkagigis. Loshen Hippuch. Loshen Ashkenaz. Sturzen. Balaz revolter, meaning uh, you know revolution turning upside down. Venerally shemiloshen zeh choli hanichba, and that's why they call uh, epilepsy choli hanichba loisam mishpachas hanichmin because you turn upside down. You know when you have a fit. Vucholi sheipol adam l'artz b'shigaon b'sibasan no das beretz b'sefer refuas chena nachdu kron zeh choli hanofel bar minon. So he talks about the epilepsy turning upside down. Now I want to tell you something. If you look in the back of the book, they did a nice job. Uh, there's some from Alfred did it. But um, uh, listen to this. In the back, this will shock you. Um, because I'm talking about a major Moscow over here. Who's a big fan of his? The Prima Gautam. <laughs> and in the back, they have Igros, a Prima Gautam. They have like six or seven letters that the Prima Gautam wrote. Um, to, um, to agree with or disagree with um, different things that the Tishbi writes, you know what I mean? And the Prima Gautam said, like, is every kid should learn this in Cheder, the Sefer Tishbi. Uh, that ain't happening. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even people like him, they used the works of Elia Bacher to get their Ivrit. And that's that's the interesting part. So, he skirted near the edge with this Geisha stuff. And he was always hanging around rich guy, but truth of the matter is like this. He did for Parnosa. You know what I'm saying? It's not like the Jews had people who said, oh, we need somebody who's an expert in Hebrew. Uh, Jews didn't give him the time of day. Uh, he had to fall back on Christians uh, with all the problematic that goes along with this. Now, when I say the problematic goes along with this, his grandchildren, famous two of his grandsons, became Catholic priests. Not his sons, but his, grand, his daughter's kids. Uh, now, you don't know where that comes from. In Italy, it happened fairly often, more than people want to recognize. But I imagine, I'm just guessing over here, that if he hung around cardinals and bishops and stuff like like that, don't be surprised. You know, someone's going to rub off on the grandchildren. And one of them became a real schmo. He was partially responsible for the burnings of all the Gamars in the 1550s and 1560s. Uh, Vittorio Liano, I think his name was, or something like that, uh, which is really, really bad news. Even though his grandfather, you know, was a from Jew, I'll say it again, he was a from Jew, uh, and you know, he he was writing on Torah matters because you're dealing with the, the the grammar and the dictic of the Chumash, of the Torah of the Tanakh. 
Now, I'll mention two other sides of him which are interesting. One is that he was into Yiddish. It's going to sound funny for me to say to you that the Jews in northern Italy in the Renaissance period spoke Yiddish. After all, they or their parents or grandparents had moved there from Germany. The German Jews spoke Yiddish, the German uh, form of Yiddish, you know, Yiddish Deutsch, right? And um, their whole culture was in Yiddish. The yeshiva in Padua always had problems, just like near Israel in my time, because they had students from all over the Mediterranean, and students had to pick up Yiddish if they wanted to understand the shiurim. This is famous. What's his name wrote about this? Uh, uh, from YU. Uh, Ziv, yeah, who wrote in the Maram Padua. Uh, so he was into Yiddish, and there are two sides of him in Yiddish, which is just interesting. Number one, he wrote a lot of uh, Pashkavilin, these little um, uh, Pasquinats, these little poems in which he's dissing this person and that person, sometimes very sharply, because people dissed him. And they used to do that. And uh, some of them are a little like X-rated, to tell you the truth. That was the culture in Italy at that time. And uh, still is. And uh, his are in Yiddish, sometimes in Hebrew. And uh, they're kind of cute in that regard. And he's got a lot of stuff for Purim. You know, these uh, Grahmans, I guess you'd call it. Which means that he had that side to him. In addition to that, he was here as a matter of making money. Uh, you know, because let's put it this way. To publish a work on Dictuk is not exactly what you call a bestseller. <laughs> you know what I mean? Publish a book on, uh, like, the Safe Maturgaman, on all the Aramaic words in the Targum. I mean, it's not a page turner, let's be honest. Uh, he wrote, uh, I'm, what I'm going to say now is going to sound funny to you. Oh, I'm gonna, hold on. Let me, let me uh, stop this and pick it up. Okay, let me pick up here. This is going to sound funny. Our hero, um, wrote uh, a famous book called Baba Misa in Yiddish. Now, I mean, that's really, that's the name of the book, Baba Misa. Listen closely how I said it. Baba Misa. I didn't say Baba Misa. I said Baba Misa. I actually spoke about this in my lecture series, was it two years ago? Something like that, about Yiddish and Yiddish literature. Uh the, the the number one romance in European geisha literature at that time was um, the legends, not exactly of King Arthur, but something like that. Something like Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Originally was Sir, Sir Bevis of Hampton. It's a famous English uh, knight who is out to save his girlfriend and fight dragons and all this other kind of and be betrayed. You know, it's 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 a very melodramatic kind of medieval romance. And the men and women ate it up. You know, I would say by the standards of the Middle Ages, not by the standards of today. Today it's G-rated. By the standards of the Middle Ages, it would be like R-rated, you know, something like that. Not exactly, but something like that. As, uh, uh, and, you know, it's the hero and the heroine, and the bad guys, and this kind of stuff. So this was very popular in English literature, and it spread in different forms, translated and slightly varied in a bunch of other literatures, including uh, the Italian one, 
Simbovo uh, Datona, I think, or something like that. So our hero said like this, I'm going to make it Yiddish. And he translated the whole thing about Sir Bovo and called the Bovo Misa, the story of Bovo. And it's a Yiddish uh, with the kudos, and uh, it's got all the melodramatic, uh, romantic uh, stuff over there with fighting the monsters and the heroes and, you know, Snidely Whiplash and, and Boris Badenov and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the perils the perils of Pauline, that's what I'm thinking of. It's like the perils of Pauline. Uh, and, he, and he published this early in his career. Now, he didn't have... This is funny to me. Um, I'm describing a person who's always hard up for money. It's not a crime, but the field that he was interested and passionate about is pretty boring to a lot of people. Uh, you know, Sefer Asherashim, Sefer uh, Atishbi, you know, a concordance. I mean, these these are used by a few scholars here and there. They're not exactly what you call, you know, the heavy kind of things that sell well, okay? Now, to a certain degree, that's true of a lot of Svarim. That, you know, Sefer Maturgamon, Shemus Advarim, Dikta Keliyahu, oh, you know, all these different sorts of things. They're wonderful for the grammarians and for the Hebraists and, and that kind of stuff. But you're not going to make money with these. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, the only way you can make money is if you find something that'll sell, you know, with a wide readership. So you got to go down and more vulgar. Because the public is always vulgar. You get it? To some degree. In fact, the word vulgar means the, the big public out there. Vulgate. And, uh, see, he figured... When he was around 35 or something like that, he's going to publish the Bubba Misa and it'll be a bestseller and he'll make some money. Now, there's nothing wrong with what I just said. It's just a little unusual. And remember, he wasn't a Rav, right? He was a Jewish intellectual, which is a different thing. He never claimed to be a big rabbi in that sort of business, devoting his whole life to sitting and learning Gemara day and night. He's got nothing against it. He was a from Jew. But it's not who he was. So what's wrong with doing something that'll make some money? And uh, the problem is, and I forget exactly why, that he wrote it all up, but he couldn't publish it till like 30 years later. Something like that, 40 years later. By that time, he was an old man. Uh, and so I don't know how the money thing worked out. But I can tell you, this book really took off naturally. Remember, we're talking about a period in which there was no literature for non-intellectual Jews. Let's say, for example, women. This is before the Tzenarena. The Tzenarena was written to fill the gap of what to read on Shabbos. But it was. But, um, you know, in Yiddish. But what about before that? It was precious little out there. And he figured like this. This will keep people glued on Shabbos. Uh, to something to read. It's like the Mishpacha magazine you read today. It's something like that. And uh, as they say, you can only publish it late in life so the money didn't come in. Like it's a bad mazel. He also published another book, Paris and Vienna. Again, the same kind of kind of business. It's strange to see something, this guy do the vulgar kind of literature. But that's what you, you know, that you did for Parnosa purposes. Again, I don't blame him a bit. You know, he had a family, he had bills. He wasn't a crook. 
He's trying to, you know, put bread on the table, as they say. And, you know, that avenue didn't open itself to him. He had to figure another avenue out, which was to find rich Gaisha patrons who would not insist on him converting. Because I can tell you right now, if he would be willing to convert, uh, he could have had any prize he wanted. Uh, that's who he was. If they would get a guy like this to Shmad, not only a professorship in Paris, he could have gotten even bigger than that. Uh, but he wouldn't do it because he was a from Jew. However, this is my opinion now. So he had this Yiddish side to him. And therefore, he's a very important figure in the early Yiddish literature, but I won't go into that. But in my opinion, probably in his family, they grew up always saying something like this. The Jews don't appreciate it, the Goyim do. Okay? Where do we get our best support? From the Christians. Which is the opposite of most Jews. And because he had skills that the Christians liked. So, I don't know for sure, but Libby Omerly, that this must have trickled down, and say, to the grandchildren, and led them to take the radical step of, number one, converting to Christianity, and number two, Catholic, number two, becoming priests, not getting married, uh, and number three, uh, being anti-Semitic, especially anti-Talmudic. Maybe they always say like this, the Jews treated my grandfather like dirt. I don't know. I suspect that's what happened. Uh, which is a sad postscript to his career. Now, I just dealt with some, and you know, eventually died in harness at the age of 80 or so in 1550, 1549, whatever it is, uh, just before the Catholic Church really, really cracked down on the Jews, um, which happened later, a few years later in the 1550s. Now, um, here we have a story, therefore, of somebody who didn't fit the rabbinic model. It wasn't Gemara, 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 Halacha, Halacha, Halacha. Italy certainly had plenty of Rabbonim who were Gemara, 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 but being Italian, they also had other stuff on the side. Poetry, some of them also wrote a little bit, a little bit of grammar, addictive books, they writ books, philosophy, even plays. But their main stuff was, you know, Gemara stuff. Drush, Main stuff was Gemara stuff. Here we're dealing with somebody who knew Gemara, but not like a big Tamakonk or anything like that. Uh, remember, the Tishbi goes through whole shots, you know, getting these hard words. Uh, but, he, you know, he, he, he wanted to be a from Moscow. Uh, there were such people. I don't think anybody was his level when it comes to Dikduk. Uh, although he wasn't a Machadish, as far as I know. I'm not the world's expert on this. But he seems to have, as they said, were synthesized what the Rishonim had already put together out of Dikduk. And uh, he, you know, he, he wasn't able to make a success of it. But he clearly relied on his books. He took full advantage of a new technology called the printing press. And he figured his books would put him in the pantheon. And they did. Because after his death, uh, not only Christians, he had one student, Sebastian Munster, Translate all the stuff into Latin. Uh, but the Jews uh, did use this form, those rabbis who were interested in that subject. Believe it or not, I think the Tishbi or, or the Nemukim was published with Hasidish Haskamas uh, in the 20th century. Uh, from Jews used his books, maybe still do. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at a safer 
that was published in, in Israel um, 15 years ago by a Haredi uh, publishing house. Uh, it's a Sephardi one. It's Mosdos Yeshivas Kisei Rachmim. I believe, I think that's Tunisian, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, but you see that, you know, he, 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 he was considered a classic. Okay? Considered a classic. Uh, the only controversial thing we can say about him is he had these Geisha students that he used to teach. That's true. And basically, he and the um, Sforno were the two famous controversial people in that particular regard. Nobody attacks the Sforno really on that. Everybody attacks our hero on that. But he didn't teach Gemara to any of these people. And as I recall, they wanted him to, to, to learn Kabbalah with them. He didn't do that either. Uh, but I'm not sure because you know, they used to... Let me tell you something. These cardinals... I'm going to say something that sounds funny. These cardinals had uh, large Hebrew libraries better than most Jews. Uh, isn't that funny? And, you know, they were collectors. After all, when you go to the Vatican today, I think many of you know that a lot of Xaviads and things like this are in the Vatican. And when you want the, the old form and all the rest of it, a lot of times you got to get them from the Vatican. Why the Vatican? Because in this Kufa of the 13, 14, 1500s, the popes, among others, were interested for various reasons in the old Hebrew uh, manuscripts, and they collected them. They didn't steal them, they, they bought them. Uh, you know, either as a hedge against inflation or other reasons like that, which is why the Vatican Library has all these amazing, uh, you know, old Kisveyad and things like this, even though it's not a subject theoretically that should that should you know um should interest them uh but that's where you got a velt of rishonim and early achornim and things like that so he lived in such an environment and uh, you know he he was able to he didn't teach him like i said we didn't teach him aloha teach him gemara i wouldn't even think the catholics at the time i'm talking about were interested in the talmud they had like a big thing against it the protestants later went into the talmud uh, in a negative way, it's like the Septuagint. Those they wanted to get into it to undermine it, uh, and you know that that part is true. Uh, but as far as I know, his uh, role was more you know just Hebrew language, and you you could make a case that teaching people the Hebrew language and even psukim to teach them the meaning of the Old Testament is not really you know, us or anything like that. Uh, anyway, that's the take on Elia Bocher, uh, who's therefore considered somewhat controversial, even though, even though he really wasn't uh, controversial, not really. Uh, and, uh, and with that, I'll just want to end by thanking very much our sponsors tonight, some of my favorite people, uh, Bernie and Susan, and Don and Kilo, all in Modine, and uh, they... Issued sponsorship when they heard I was sick, and I'm very happy to uh, acknowledge that. Wish everybody a good week.